Hey, welcome to the Pharmacy Residency and Money Podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Tony Guerra, pharmacist and publisher, bringing you help succeeding in your career, health, and wealth before, during, and after residency. You can sign up for the email list at pharmacyresidencypodcast.com to get your free LOI template or get editing help working one-on-one with me at residency.teachable.com. Hey, welcome to the Pharmacy Residency Podcast. Remember the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I have Derek Delaney on, uh, who is a certified financial planner uh, just up the road from me. When I say that, he's up in Minnesota. I'm in Iowa. And uh, it's a guy that I lean on to trust very much because he's a fiduciary. um, And uh, he is just very knowledgeable, very on top of things. And you guys uh, are as you're going into residency, as you're graduating from residency, you've got some things you need to kind of uh, deal with um, that some people in the past have not had to deal with. So Derek, welcome to the Pharmacy Residency Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. All right. So let's get started with some timelines. Let's start with uh, the anybody that was not in the class of 2023 uh, who's going into residency this year, but the people that um, maybe are graduating from residency or moving into a PGY2 and kind of continuing on or even a fellowship. Um, tell me a little bit about what happened with the end of the pause. Yeah, so we're coming up on, I believe it's 44 months of this pause being put in place where no interest on direct student loans have been accrued and no payments have been required to be made. And all of that is coming to a screeching halt um, starting in September. So September is the first big date most people want to keep their eye on. And that's when your student loans start to accrue interest again. And then October of this year is when those student loan payments will finally turn back on for majority of borrowers. And my understanding is that you have to call your servicer to figure out what October date that's going to be. Yes, I would recommend calling your servicer regardless, just to make sure you're both on the same page and you're ready to go to make sure that if you want to make payments automatically, they have your bank account information to decide what day works best for you as far as those payments coming out of your account and any other bits of information you want to get organized um, when you think of student loan repayment. Okay. And... Um, We talked about just this just before the show, but uh, many students um, are going to be going into residency. They can still defer it in some way. Um, Can you explain what a resident is allowed to do uh, who is working but is in this professional training role? And then if they should actually start paying, they should go into PSLF. What, What options or is it just a Call me. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it gets it gets pretty complicated, but kind of the simplified version, if, if you're a new resident, you get the same grace period that everybody else does after they graduate before you're okay. required to pay back those student loans. Mm-hmm. However, if you are pursuing some sort of income-based repayment plan, like public service loan forgiveness, it might be better to start those payments sooner than later, just so you can start racking up those 120 qualified payments that will be required for you to get that 10-year forgiveness. Okay. All right. So now we kind of go into income-based repayment. And to be fair, Biden has been very much on the side of people who have student loans, has been a champion for them, went to the Supreme Court for them. Uh, My political leanings are completely, you know, out of this. But to be fair, he is continuing to try to help 
And my understanding is that the new income-based repayment is a huge part of that. But can we start with what income-based repayment is, what it is now, and what it will be? Yeah, so income-based repayment plans are a way for students to legally repay their loans, and that loan repayment amount is based off of their income and not the actual amortized payment that would otherwise have been required to pay off that debt at a certain date. So for example, a normal amortized payment, um, one could look at a 30-year mortgage. Okay. Your payment every single month over the course of 30 years will be X. And if you make that payment, your mortgage will be paid off in exactly 30 years. Okay. Because they take into account the interest accrued on that loan over those 30 years and back that into that single payment that you start with and make for the entirety of the loan. However, with income-based repayment, they don't care about interest rates. They don't care about the amortization of the loan or anything like that. You pay what your income allows you to pay based off of poverty limits and other, other, I guess, benchmarks put in place to determine what your payment is, which is entirely based off of your income in that year. So the thought behind that is no student should ever feel like they're drowning in student loan payments if it's based off of their actual income. Okay. And the criticism of the current uh, form right now is that when people go to income-based repayment, they're not really paying a heck of a lot of in principal. And so they still owe so much. And I think it's even possible to be inverted that you actually owe more than you did before because your, your obligation is being met. It's kind of almost like a tell me if I'm wrong, but it's like where you can pay the minimum on the credit card, but you're still accruing all of this mass and just not paying it off. Can you tell me a little bit about, was it the criticism and that's what Biden's trying to fix? Bidenomics, as it were? Kind of, yes. So going back, what you're talking about is negative amortization. Mm -hmm. So if, if your income is really low and you have hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loan debt, your payment is probably going to be smaller than the actual accrued interest on that debt, meaning that even though you make your payment, the balance on that debt is going to continue to rise, which is not necessarily a bad thing for income-based repayment plans because at the end, regardless of how big that debt gets, it all gets forgiven. Okay. However, at the end of that road, a lot of people don't realize that there is a tax consequence that needs to be paid because of that forgiveness. So if that balance continues to grow and grow and grow, you may receive the forgiveness at the end, but you're going to you're going to experience a large tax bill because of that, which most people don't know or prepare for leading up to that event. And if you don't qualify for income-based repayment anymore, or you switch directions in life and it doesn't make sense, and all of a sudden you start paying on that student loan um, through a normal 10-year repayment plan, and you get back to amortization, and that loan's way bigger than it was before, that's just more money out of your pocket than otherwise could have been. So it's kind of been a pain in the butt for a lot of student loan borrowers to deal with okay. when they're on income-based repayment plans. And that's one of the things this new income-based repayment plan that Biden is rolling out will change. Okay. And I'm sure you'll have a show down the line, but my understanding is that there's like, not benchmarks, but timelines. Like if you started your payment, if you started your student loans and sometime you're in this repayment, um, something's like repay or something like that. And I don't know the acronyms, but is this a loan servicer question or how do you know which income-based repayment you end up with? So this is actually the, the crux of 
finding somebody who understands how income-based repayments work and figuring out which option works best for you, considering your situation and what you think your life is going to look like moving forward. Because before it all depended on what type of student loans you had, when you took those student loans out, um, are you married? Does your spouse have income? Do you anticipate being married? <laughs> all of all that Sorry. information would determine what income-based repayment plan would be best for you. Okay. With this new save income-based repayment plan that the Biden administration is rolling out, it's essentially going to replace repay and it's going to freeze anybody who wants to get into pay and force them into the save plan because it's going to be a lot better for them. So it's going to get simpler and it's going to get easier for those who want to get on income-based repayment plans with this new one that's going to get rolled out here soon. Okay. And I just want to make sure for the listeners, they know that repay is R-E-P-A-Y-E, right? And that becomes S-A-V-E. Those are the acronyms I think that they're throwing around right now. You're exactly right. right. S-A-V-E will replace R-E-P-A-Y-E. Okay. Now he forgave 39 billion in loans, but my understanding is that right now we are at 1.780 trillion. And these numbers are so big, you can't actually use like your phone to do this calculation. But all he's done is move it from 1.780 trillion to 1.741 trillion. And um, I encourage everybody to uh, listen to the Farm DFP podcast where you've talked about things like this and, and really gives you a great financial education. But can you talk a little bit about how this is simply not sustainable, as you talked about in a recent episode about the, it's kind of a cliff uh, where we're just not going to have as many students as we had. And either tuition is going to have to go down or the number of schools is going to have to go down or some combination. But can you talk a little bit about how uh, this the student loan uh, massive bill cannot be sustained? Yeah, so it's eventually going to have to break. Either students are going to look at what life is going to be like if they pursue a secondary education, knowing that they're going to rack up all this debt and knowing that if they're going to get a job, they're not going to be able to afford to pay it all back. So is that path in life actually worth it? And -hmm. I think we're getting to a crossroads right now where a lot of people and parents are looking at that and going, no way. And if demand for college starts dropping dramatically, not only for the fact that the value just isn't there anymore, but for the reason that I just don't think there's going to be a big enough population to be able to continue the trend of enrollment that we've seen over the last 10 years. Schools are either one, going to go out of business, two, to stay in business, they're going to have to request more money from the states that they operate out of, or three, there's going to be a lot of um, schools coming together and combining forces. And if that happens, I think that prices are eventually going to have to come down because I think there are going to be other unique options students can eventually pursue to get that education that's going to be far cheaper than going to a university or college. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I just uh, I just don't know how you can sustain this. And maybe we could take a quick tangent, but my, my situation is very different than others. But um, we have to pay for three colleges at the same time in six years, and we've made the decision to only put fifty thousand for each in a five twenty nine. So only one hundred and fifty thousand will will finance things the other way, uh, other ways um, for them. But can you talk a little bit about how someone who might be looking at college or someone how is saving for college? Um, what are the ways that you recommend to just avoid dealing with so much student loan debt because the average pharmacy student is graduating about 160,000. 
Yeah. So if, if you're a parent and you have any aspiration for your kids to go to college, the earlier you can start saving, the better off it's going to be. And I always recommend if you're going to start saving for college, save in a tax advantage account, like a 529. Okay. And as that balance continues to grow, and as your kids get closer to knowing if they're going to attend college or not, you can start diversifying your savings into other vehicles that may provide for more flexibility later on in life. The other things you can look at are taking advantage of work programs while you're in school, getting a part-time job if you're a student to help pay for some of that, and then really understanding what payment options are out there after you graduate and how to best utilize those is going to provide you with a roadmap when you actually graduate if you do have student loans on the best ways to pay those back. So I find that most students get themselves into the most trouble when they come out of college and they're completely uneducated uneducated about their student loan options. And they just kind of kick the can down the road and start making payments. And then a year or two goes by and they realize all these other options were available to them and they missed out on taking advantage of them. And they pay a lot more in student loan debt than they otherwise would have if they had understood their options a lot better. Okay. So let's, let's go down that rabbit hole. Um, I just heard, and it just breaks my heart to hear this, that somebody says, just, just pay them off, just get them done. And I understand from an emotional standpoint, I get that. And maybe that's a motivating factor. But what usually happens, especially with uh, now many of the residents have children, many of the residents are in families, many want to start families. Now they're asking, okay, I have loans. Should I buy a car? Should I buy a house? Should I invest? How much should I pay for my loans? And I think that that complexity is where you come in uh, and provide that saving. So can you tell me a little bit about how you make those decisions under the guidance of your three pillars, which are that you're, if you're diversifying, keeping things low cost and tax efficient. So your recommendation for the student loans, the 529s are generally date funds. So they're diversified already. They're low cost because we're um, getting actually a little bit of, we don't pay state taxes on them. And then they're tax efficient because you don't pay tax if you use them for uh, um, some kind of educational um, thing. So how do people make these decisions on car, house, loan, invest? It all comes down to what your priorities are. Okay. To be, to be honest, I have, I have talked to and have met people who get caught up with, I just graduated. I have this, I have this pharmacy degree. I'm going to be working a job making over a hundred thousand dollars a year. And my family and my lifestyle never even approached what I am capable of now as far as spending and the options that are available to me. So they instantly go into spend mode and they want to get that house and they want to get that car and they want to prove to themselves and everybody else around them that they have made it and they're earning a great living and nothing can stop them now. <laughs> and there's not enough money to, and there's not enough money to go around and they usually get themselves in trouble and they make bad decisions like refinancing their their student loan debt so instead of on a 10-year amortization schedule it goes up to a 30 and then all of a sudden they're 20 years in and they're still making student loan payments and you compare that to somebody else who goes you know what I'm going to live for the first 3 4 5 years like I'm still in college okay I'm going to get a roommate I am going to watch my spending and I am going to plow as much money as I can into taking care of the student debt and also making sure I'm taking care of my financial future as well by investing in an employer's 401k or a Roth IRA outside of that. And the difference 10 years down the road between those two scenarios is absolutely incredible. And the flexibility and 
financial freedom that those two paths will set people on after that first decade is is outrageous. I mean, that first person will continue struggling. They'll continue to feel like they're being left behind and they'll continue to have to punch that clock and grind. While that other individual who took five years of their life and made smart decisions will have so much more freedom and flexibility that you will be astounded by the different paths they will be forced to take just by the decisions they made in those first five years after graduating college. That sounds like, uh, we won't get into it here, but that sounds a little like the second person is Coast Fi, where they establish enough of a, uh, an investment account that they can at least minimize the amount that, that they uh, decrease their standard of living. Well, let's talk a little bit about each of these pieces. Um, let's start with Carmageddon. <laughs> I would not be, want to be a car dealer uh, in these days right now. Um, for us, a $50,000 car is 2% of our net worth, and and we're... Uh, in a position where we're going to probably buy another one um, here. But that, my understanding is the average new car is $48,000, which again, makes me just sick to my stomach. Um, but I don't want to give predictions, but I'll tell you what I'm hearing. And then you you tell me your thoughts. Sure. Uh, right now, I'm hearing that the, the um, used car market is actually going down a bit, although the wholesale prices have gone down. That's not really... The dealers are still kind of keeping those uh, prices high, but trade-ins are relatively high. But new car prices, it's almost impossible to find a new car under 20000 certainly. Um, but the new car prices have absolutely skyrocketed. But because of the continued pressure, and we find out from the Fed, we're talking on Tuesday, we find out from the Fed tomorrow about that quarter point? Or I believe so, yes. Tomorrow's yeah. Wednesday, yes. Yeah. Um, but let's assume... Prices and Jerome Powell has made pretty clear. Look, we're going to keep this here for a while. And when he says a while, he's saying maybe a couple of years. Um, so with the car, uh, you're looking at about eight percent for a new car, about twelve percent for a used car. Uh, should you buy a car now, or should you wait till that December when it tends to be a little bit of a dip? Uh, what What are your thoughts on the car? Well, I always recommend waiting if you think prices are going to go down, mm -hmm. um, especially if you are not a cash buyer. If you have to take out a loan now to purchase a vehicle, mm -hmm. you're going to be in a really tough spot because the vehicles, just like homes right now, are still pretty expensive comparatively. Yeah. And the borrowing cost to purchase that vehicle is extremely high compared to what it was the last handful of years. So you're getting the worst of both situations by pursuing that right now. My recommendation for a lot of people is if you want to buy a car, Give yourself one year's worth of runway and save okay. the cash in order to do it. And then walk into a dealership with cash in hand and negotiate a price you want because you're going to have all the power when you put yourself in that type of scenario instead of walking into a dealership or um, another business and asking to get some sort of financing to purchase the vehicle. Okay. Uh, so housing. <laughs> oh. I, I just, um, this... This breaks my heart. So I've, I've been saving for another house. And when I say saving for a house, I was, my my plan was pay off a house, pay off another house, pay off another house. But rates went up so fast that I said, oh my gosh, um, we've already passed the rate I'm at. Uh, what am I going to do? And so what I'm hearing is that rates may go down if the Fed shows that they're going to stop raising them because mortgage rates aren't necessarily tied to the increase in rates. 
but that there will be a spike in the price if as the rates go down, because the buyers are much more in tune, like, okay, now I can afford it. Now I'm going to buy where the sellers are like, meh, I still got 2%. That's that's <laughs> not really, you know, I'm glad you're getting six and a half or you're even getting six or five and a half, but I'm still at two. Uh, and that that's still a big spread for me. Um, so I'm hearing there will be a massive, uh, there will be a significant upturn and eventually we'll get to a normal market where the maybe there's a correction. Um, what have you heard? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but uh, you know, people come out of residency saying, okay, I'm ready to buy a house. That's going to be the more prudent thing. But uh, my understanding is that 47 of the 50 largest markets, it is cheaper to rent than buy. It, it is, it's going to be fascinating to watch what the next 24 <laughs> months look like in the housing market. I, I, I love that word. Fascinating. That is the word I will use. <laughs> my personal belief, Tony, is that I think housing prices remain elevated for the next six to 12 months because of the fact that demand is so low. Mm-hmm. However, I have a fee in, in when people talk about what you mean, supply is so low supply. You said they'll, they'll stay elevated because supply is so low. Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But I think it's important for people to realize that if you are waiting to buy a home and you're waiting for uh, the the home market to normalize, normal will never be what it was two, three years ago. Interest rates, in my opinion, again, for probably the next 25, 35 years will never be in the twos. Mm-hmm. I think the the idea that so many people are going to buy rental properties and have passive income and use real estate to build their wealth is not going to work the way it did two years ago because the Federal Reserve came in and they eliminated the punch bowl. They took yeah. away low. They took away low borrowing um, interest rates, and now we're back up to more normal rates. And I don't see that going backwards anytime soon. And I will say the one straw that is keeping housing elevated that I think needs to break to lower that cost with homes, car prices, and and everything else is employment. So. Yeah. If I was advising a pharmacist right now coming out of residency who's about to earn a really good income, I would recommend rent, rent something cheap and start building your cash reserves right now. Start saving a ton of money because in the next 12 to 24 months, it's my personal opinion that a lot of deals will be had once once employment in America finally breaks and prices start to come down. And when that happens, you're going to have to have the ability to act fast because there's a lot of other people out there who are going to be waiting for the same thing. And if you're somebody who doesn't have cash and you're going to have to pursue the normal financing options, it's going to be a lot harder for you to take advantage of those deals when they present themselves. Okay. All right. Let's get to the last one, which is uh, invest. So if we were in October of last year, which I think was the bottom of the S&P, and uh, you said, well, I want to save for a house, the best thing to do would be if you had the crystal ball to put the money in, well... I mean, you could be like, oh, let's just pick Facebook and go up 78% or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But let's, you know, NASDAQ, you know, 30%, whatever Nvidia. it is. Yeah, no, yeah, you can't, you can't, can't lose um, as you're going into October. But if you had talked about October 2021 and you had done the same thing, you would have enjoyed a painful, uh, you know, ride down. So as an investor, um, Certainly, there's the match. If, if somebody gets 100% match, that that always tends to be the, the okay, well, at least do that. But um, how, how do people make these? You've got student loans at 7%. You're trying to invest to get 8 to 10 usually in the market is, is, some, is what most people say. Um, how do you make these decisions? 
you have to look long, you have to, you have to balance short-term with long-term mm-hmm. and you have to sacrifice a lot of the discretionary wants. I know young people desire when they get out into the workforce. So you have to, you have to look at, you know, the $450,000 home is something that maybe you shouldn't purchase right now. Maybe you should mm-hmm. rent. You have to look at the $48,000, $50,000 car that you've always wanted and maybe push that back a couple of years until you build your cash reserves up and you get enough money in investments and you start freeing up a little more cash flow. Okay. Sacrificing a lot of those near-term discretionary wants that most people have and being able to allocate your resources to those student loan debt simultaneously while investing is going to flip the uh, the the way your net worth is situated right now. And when you get that moving in the right direction, then I think you're going to have opportunities to pursue those other things. But as far as I'm concerned with the way the environment is right now, economically, you have to sacrifice those discretionary wants in the beginning in order to satisfy the investing and the student loans at the same time. And if you can do that long-term, you're going to thank yourself for making that decision. Yeah. My wife has the seven-year itch now and and it's on a car. So I'm, I'm excited about that part of it. But uh, yeah, she had never had a car for this long. Uh, and so 2016 was when she bought it. So this is the year we'll we'll likely get her a new one. And hopefully we can hold out till till December or whenever. The other, but, the other, the other thing I yeah. want to point out too, Tony, when it comes to the car market, yeah. is there are so many people who have unrealistic car payments right now just to have the vehicle. And when these student loan payments start and unemployment starts to creep up and maybe we hit a little bit of a recession, a lot of those people are going to be forced to offload those vehicles. Okay, And that's okay. where if you've been saving for the last 6, 12, 18, 24 months as a new resident, you'll have the ability to get a lot of deals in the car market and in the home market, I think, longer term if you have that cash reserve available. So that should, in my opinion, be your number one focus along with eliminating that debt if you're not forced to go on an income-based repayment plan. Okay, we'll see how long she can wait, but uh, yeah, we're we're at the point now. And and again, um, you know, appreciate your podcast and all the information you give out. Uh, but uh, we we only pay cash for cars. And I remember going in to get something for my my uh, rental house or whatever, and I was like, oh no, we're we're gonna pay off the the car, you know. And she's like, that's funny, you don't do that. I was like, no, we we walk in and here's here's what we're we're willing to pay, and and uh, that's it. So um, again, I appreciate uh, all the, the the help that you guys uh, give with that podcast and everything. So let's kind of talk about how people can get in touch with you. I don't want to go too far over that 25-minute mark. Um, how can they t- uh, get in touch with you? And then how can they um, hear some of your good advice on the podcast? Yeah. So my podcast is out there and available. It's called the Farm D Money Podcast. So we're coming up on 100 episodes. I like to produce an episode and air it every other week. Um, it's a drive time type of podcast. So they're usually um, between 10 to 15 minutes in length. And the goal is just to provide some sort of financial nugget people can use and take action on, or just to drop a thought that isn't maybe um, normalized yet about things that are happening and things that people could prepare for financially. If people want to get a hold of me and they want to learn more about my firm, I recommend visiting my website. It's farmdf p.com. There's some good free resources on there for people to take advantage of. And if you feel willing, um, you always have the option to book a complimentary consultation with myself. So it's a 20 to 30 minute conversation. We could talk about things that are going on in your life to see if hiring a financial professional is something that's worth your time or not. So you don't have to 
pay to get that type of experience. I offer that type of conversation free for anybody who books that off my website. Okay. All right, Derek. Well, thanks again for being on the Pharmacy Residency Podcast. Thank you for having me. This has been the Pharmacy Residency and Money Podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You might want to check out our available residency audiobooks at pharmacyresidencypodcast.com forward slash books, or you can get your first book free if you've never been on Audible before. You can work one-on-one with me to get a better residency that will better suit your career, health, and wealth at residency.teachable.com. Feel free to send an invite to Tony PharmD on LinkedIn or email me at tonythepharmacist at gmail.com. Music was by Policy.